We're going to praise the Lord by singing Psalm 119, letter J. Psalm 119, letter J. Give me insight to learn your commands, for you made me and fashioned me, Lord. May your saints, when they see me, rejoice, since I placed all my hope in your word. Psalm 119, letter J, and Donna will play through this one time uh, before we sing. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 6, as today we uh, finish the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, and I want to begin reading at verse 17 and following. We'll go down to verse 20, though our exposition will come more from verse 18 and following. We'll put 17 there as some context. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 and following. Let's pray together and then we'll read. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We need help to read. We need help to understand the things that are written. We need help by your spirit to preach these things plainly and simply and yet with uh, meat for the mature and milk for the babes, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give the application that is needful and necessary. May, Lord, uh, we enjoy your word today. May we uh, eat it with delight, and may we meditate and digest it 
in the coming days. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 6, now at verse 17. Hear now the scripture. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. We are going to talk about Melchizedek, part of that next week, because chapter 7 goes into such detail. But other than that, we are going to cover uh, verses 18 through 20 this morning. I want to start just reminding us here where we have been a little bit. We are receiving in this chapter a bit of a warning against apostasy, but at the same time, the apostle is encouraging the church to hope for better. He's warning us on the one hand, boys and girls, that we should not stray from the Lord and we should not walk away from the Lord. But yet at the same time, he's also encouraging us, much like a parent encourages you, that we expect you not to do such a thing, that we expect you to continue to abide with Christ. And so the apostle here has a good hope for this congregation. And this, of course, is good pastoral theology for us here in the 21st century, though this is 2,000 years later than when Hebrews was originally written to the audience there, nevertheless serves the same purpose. We want to persevere here at Covenant Presbyterian Church in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are hopeful that you will uh, abide in Christ. You will bear fruit for Christ. But we also always have to watch ourselves uh, because we can be our own worst enemies and we need to take care uh, lest uh, through the deceitfulness of riches or through the temptations of the world or the flesh of the devil that we should find ourselves drifting away uh, from God. And so that's, that's really the, the, the Hebrews chapter 6 at 40,000 feet. Uh, but we're also boring down uh, into the particulars of these verses. How is it that we are to be persevering? Well, one of the ways in which the author of Hebrews tells us is by way of being imitators of the faithful who did persevere, who showed themselves to be uh, men and women, and we're going to see this more when we get to Hebrews 11, uh, who were part of the hall of fame of faith, people who loved the Lord, uh, despite that the fact that so much was against them. Uh, yet, despite all the obstacles, they persevered, they overcame, even if they didn't attain to all the things that they might have hoped for while they were still living 
they nevertheless trusted in the promises of God, and God saw them safely into glory. So it is. We are to imitate them. As the Apostle Paul says, follow me insofar as I follow Jesus Christ. And so there's nothing wrong with looking to the saints of the Old Testament or even those in the New Testament as encouragements for your faith and for your walk, that as you see them following the Lord, and that means you're going to have to use some discernment now. Sometimes, you know, you'll read narratives. You can't do everything they did because sometimes they did things that weren't right. So you have to be discerning here, okay? And you have to say, okay, well, this is where they were faithful. Here's where I need to be careful. I think the text usually will let you know. But in so far as they are faithful, we follow uh, them in the Lord. Now, he goes on, the author here does, and he says that uh, we, he, he focuses on Abraham as an illustration of this. He says, I want you to imitate those who have gone before you. And, and then he begins to look at Abraham in particular. Why Abraham? Well, because Abraham demonstrates, I think, so clearly uh, for the church of all ages what it is to trust in the promises of God. Because the promises of God were extraordinary, weren't they, to Abraham? Particularly given his circumstance, particularly the fact that he and Sarah were both very elderly and they had no natural prodigy, they had no natural children, and they had um, very little by way of inheritance uh, in the land itself. Um, Abraham would later buy a little burial plot, but other than that, they had no property of their own. They were wanderers, they were strangers, and yet God says, I'm going to give you this land, Abraham, and I'm going to give this to you and to your descendants and to all those who trust in you. And then, if that were not enough, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I am going to have kings come from forth from you. And of course, we know that ultimately the kings would be those of David's lineage and Jesus Christ himself. And the New Testament teaches us that all who believe in Jesus Christ thereby become heirs of Abraham. And so we see how God fulfills that promise. Now, let me bring it to our verses today. How did God, how did God help secure Abraham's faith? He did so by two ways. One was making a promise unto him in that God cannot lie. And two, to back up that promise by taking an oath where God promised upon his own being that if he did not fulfill what, that which he promised to Abraham, let him be torn asunder. Let him be, if it were possible, destroyed. Now today I want you to see three things as we now go forth from the promise and the oath that was given to Abraham. Number one, from verse 18, I want you to see that God is immutable. One of the reasons that God's word and oath should be sufficient for Abraham and for us is the fact that he is what we say doctrinally immutable. That means boys and girls, he does not change. To be mutable or to mutate means you can change. To be immutable, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E, immutable means God does not change, okay? And that is a very important concept. 
that I want you to get today. That's going to be point number one. Point number two for our encouragement to perseverance is not only that God is immutable, but that God has provided refuge for all who seek Christ Jesus. There is refuge when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That's also coming from verse 18. And then thirdly, from verses 19 and 20, God has provided an anchor set in glory in another world that secures you to that reality and through that security will actually see to it that there you will eventually be. So three thoughts. One, God is immutable. Why this is important for the church. Number two, for you to see that there is refuge in Jesus Christ. And number three, that Jesus Christ is an anchor for you uh, in glory. We want to consider those three things with you this morning. Now let's look together at point number one, verse 18. Point number one and number two are going to come from verse 18. So we see in verse 18 the following. After he has explained the oath and the promise in verse 17, he says, so that by two unchangeable things. Now notice that the NLAS speaks of two unchangeable things. What's that? What are those two unchangeable things again? It's God's promise and the oath that God has taken. But notice here he says that they are unchangeable. Why is it that the oath and the promise of God are unchangeable? It is because God himself is immutable in his being and character. So that when God says something and promises something to us in the scriptures, it must come to pass. It not only will come to pass, it must come to pass because of the being and character of our immutable covenant-keeping God. Everything that God has promised in the Bible is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Every promise, as you work your way from the first promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15, all the way to the promise at the end in Revelation 22, everything and everything in between, you will find it will come to pass exactly as God said it would. He, notice here, the author of Hebrews says, is not like men in order that he would lie. He is truth. God is truth. Jesus said his word is truth. And in the truth that he speaks, that truth cannot change. It cannot change because God cannot change. God is immutable in his being, but also in all his attributes. God is perfect in his attributes. He is perfect in his love. He is perfect in his wisdom. He is perfect in his righteousness. He is perfect in his mercy. He is perfect in every aspect of his being and character. And he, that perfection is immutable. He's perfect in his knowledge. You can't teach God anything. God already knows all things. God does not learn. God, God is immutable in that 
omniscience. Uh, the Lord does not grow. God does not mature. God is immutable in his being and in his character. And as this applies to us, this gives us a certainty that when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have everything which you have need of for this life and for the world to come. God will not ultimately deceive us. He will not fail us. Now, I am not saying that there may not be occasions in your Christian walk whereby you do not understand or where you are perplexed or where it seems as though the experience is contrary to the promise. But wherever providence and promise seem at odds with each other, you always are to trust in the promise. That, that, that we go through this world as one looking you know, through a veil. We see dimly. We see darkly. God knows what he's doing. I used to stay with a family when I was an intern um, during my seminary days, and I interned up in Maryland, and I stayed with a family. And that was just one of the favorite family sayings. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, God knows what he's doing. And you, you, we meet with so many frustrations in life. And we need to regularly be reminded God knows what he's doing. God is fulfilling all that he has promised. All that is, I mean, how many times must Abraham have thought to himself, surely this, this, how can this come to pass? And yet he had to be reminded, didn't he? God knows what he's doing. He's given us his word. He's given us his promise. It's backed up with an oath. And God cannot lie. He cannot change. Uh, and, and therefore, because he cannot change, the promise cannot change. Again, so that by, this is verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, notice now who he's speaking of. He's talking about Christians now. He's talking about the church now. He's not talking about Abraham. We who have taken refuge. Who's taken refuge you and I in Jesus Christ, if you have believed on Jesus Christ, you have taken refuge in him. We who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That is, you can be encouraged when you are going through difficulties. And as I said to the boys in Sunday school today, I said, you know, you read the Psalms, and sometimes they may sound strange to you. I know when I was a new Christian, some of the Psalms seemed strange to me because I thought, David's always talking about these enemies, these enemies. Who are these enemies? But then as you work your way through the Christian life, and God brings you into deeper waters, you begin to realize the reality of spiritual warfare, don't you? Yet when God brings us ourselves into deeper waters, we still can have the encouragement, notice here, of the promise of God and his immutable character. Are you struggling this morning with anything in your life? Are you struggling with, with any kind of doubt in your life or resistance uh, to faith in, in your life? 
Um, do you find like yourself thinking, my life seems at odds with the promise? Um, consider that the promise is where you need to look. The promise is greater than your sense of feeling. Um, and our culture needs to hear that. Our culture is big into feelings these days. That, uh, you know, we, we live based on our feelings. We are getting more and more emotive as a culture. Uh, but, but we're not called to live by feelings. Now, I'm not encouraging stoicism, where we just all pretend, you know, we don't have feelings and good things we take with the same measure of enthusiasm as bad things. Uh, that's stoicism. Uh, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. He, you know, he wasn't stoic over his friend's death. But we look beyond the sense of feeling and how I feel, and we preach to ourselves, what does God's word say? What does God's word say about this situation that I'm confronting? You know, maybe you're having an interpersonal relationship problem. Maybe it's a family problem. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's, you know, a difficulty uh, at, at work. Maybe you have a decision to make. But whatever the circumstance may be, we know that God has seen to it that all the things that providentially come up in our life are working for our good, according to Romans 8.28. Why? Because we know that we are destined in Christ for glory because of these two inviolable things, that God has made a promise and he has backed up that promise to Abraham and that all who believe in the Savior of Abraham will be a part of the inheritance of Abraham, that we will be in glory with him. Jesus said that Abraham looked unto me and saw my day and rejoiced. He said, the problem with you Pharisees is you're not trusting in the promise of God. Like Abraham, your father, you claim to be the children of Abraham because you're biologically, ethnically descendants of him. You may have the DNA of Abraham in your body, but you are lacking, he said, the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed the promise. And when you believe the promise, the inviolable promise of God, you become one of Abraham's children. So number one, God is immutable. He does not change. This is an important doctrine for us to remember. Man, we change. We, we, we change all the time. Um, and, and this is why, you know, one of the reasons, you know, even if we make a promise and we're earnest about it and sincere about it, you know, we, we don't always, we don't control everything. Um, new information comes. There's such a thing as intervening historical contingencies. We make a promise, and we may be as sincere and earnest in it, but it may not be possible for us to fulfill it, even if, even if we were trying to bring it to pass. But not so with God. Not so with the Lord. So, Number one, God is immutable. Take encouragement in your perseverance because God does not change. And you can rely on God and the immutability of God to help you in your perseverance. Number two today, also coming from verse 18. This is really neat, and I'm borrowing here from John Owen. 
And that is that God has provided a refuge. Look at verse 18 again. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, the church, who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, what I want to focus on, first of all, is that second part where it says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. In John Owen's commentary, Owen asks us to imagine a man who is out working in, in the forest or something outdoors. And he is chopping down trees and uh, getting them prepared for whatever the wood is going to be eventually turned to. And all is right with him and the world. <coughs> but suddenly, as the man pulls his axe back to strike another blow in the tree, the axe head flies off the handle and strikes one of his co-workers in the head, and the co-worker dies. He says, now suddenly, his life has radically and instantly changed. Where he was at peace um, with the world, now what? He is considered a manslayer. Now, boys and girls, he did not intend to kill his co-worker. He is not a murderer. But he is, nevertheless, a manslayer. And if you know the uh, Mosaic Law, you know that uh, Moses commanded that if such a terrible incident should happen, an accident happen in which somebody is killed uh, because of something that you have done or left undone, that you had a responsibility to go to what were called cities of refuge. That is, scattered throughout the tribes of Israel, God provided a certain amount of cities in each of these tribal areas where somebody who accidentally brought harm to the life of another could flee and be protected from any family member of the deceased from taking vengeance on him. And so he was to go and live in that city, and then once he fled to that city, they were to have a trial, and if, you know, if it was adjudicated that, yes, indeed, this was an accident, there were other co-workers there, everything, he didn't have any malice, never, no hard words between the two before the axe head flew off, he is allowed to continue to live in that city of refuge until the high priest dies. That was what the law said. Now, if he was found guilty, and if they said, oh, no, you know, I heard him say, I'm going to kill you before this lunchtime today, and, and then claims, oh, it was an accident, and nobody saw what happened, well, then he might be found guilty, and he would have been put to death. But here we're dealing with a case, a situation where there, this person is truly uh, innocent of murder. It was an accident, and he flees to the city of refuge. And what Owen says here um, was, it was really interesting. He said that such it is uh, with what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What, why did God provide uh, the, the law to have these cities of refuge? And Owen argues that it was more than just to adjudicate cases, but it was also to help us as believers in Jesus Christ to see that, that Christ is our refuge. That when you go to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the security 
and the shelter and the protection of the law. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law for you. In his obedience, in his perfect life, the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything that you and I have not done. And by his death, his penal substitutionary death, uh, Jesus Christ has taken the penalty of that law. And so we, we have for us here a picture of refuge. Now look back here at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Notice here that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that you who have taken refuge in Jesus Christ have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, what is this hope? I'll explain that more in the third point here. But this hope, one of the things that it certainly is, is the hope of perseverance. That's the context of this chapter, is it not? What is the hope? The hope is that we will continue in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not fall away. We will make it to the end. Why will we make it to the end? Because God is immutable. God has given us his promise. God has backed that promise up with his oath. God cannot lie. God's character and being is perfect. And he will see to it that we who have, seeking, who have sought a refuge... In Jesus Christ, we also will attain to the hope that is within us. And what is that hope? That hope of glory. What is our hope? Our hope is that we will, despite all the opposition of the world and the flesh and the devil and the internal fighting with sin within ourselves, we will yet persevere. We will be like Abraham. Though Abraham had very little in his life, compared to what God had promised him. He believed the promise and the word of God and it, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And from that, he persevered into glory. So all we who are the children, the father, the, excuse me, the sons and the daughters of Abraham, we too, who have sought refuge in Jesus Christ, we too have good reason to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, how do I take hold of this hope set before us. How do you take hold of this encouragement of heaven? You take hold of it just as you began. You take hold of it by going to Christ. You take hold of it by saying, Lord, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you are the living and true God. I believe that you did indeed send Jesus Christ, your only begotten son, into this world to die for me. And I, by your grace, trust in that life, death, and resurrection of your son for eternal life. Lord, give me grace this day to persevere. Lord, you have said in your word that all who confess you with the mouth and believe upon you. You want to talk promises here. If you confess the Lord with your mouth and believe upon him with your believe upon him with your heart, you shall be saved. You say, Lord, that's a promise. Lord, you gave us this promise here in Romans 10. 
And now, Lord, I am coming to you as your son and your daughter, asking that you who cannot lie, Lord, you would work that in my life, that I might attain to greater assurance of the hope set before me, that I might persevere, that I would not fall away. You know, I know some Christians think, oh, you know, Pastor, we can't pray to persevere. I think you can. I think you should. You know, pray for grace to persevere. Um, I don't think it's a lack of faith. I think it's, a, it's recognizing the, the struggle that is within us in Romans 7, the struggle that is against us, the, the reality that, of all the enemies that are out there against us. So, Lord, give me grace to believe your word and your promise. You can take hold of the hope that is set before you. I want to say this to those of you maybe who are struggling with assurance. You have confessed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. You've joined the church, but you are struggling to have that sense that you are a, a true Christian. Now, I know for some of you, you, you wonder, why am I preaching on this? Because you've never personally experienced it. But there are an, a number of Christians who this is a struggle. And, and they, they do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that assurance is not of the essence of faith. And it is possible that many, especially, you know who needs this the most? It's young Christians and mothers with young children because you get exhausted and you get susceptible to uh, doubt about assurance. Um, the, the people who struggle often the most, and, 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 and also I would add to that, if you are just temperamentally somewhat of an introspective person, uh, a sensitive, introspective person who you know, feels the weight of your sin a lot, uh, they struggle too. So you, you know, extroverted types who just, you know, <laughs> don't have a day of doubt in your, in your life, uh, just stay with me here. The, the, the Bible here is offering that assurance is a reality, that it can be attained, and we should seek assurance in our salvation. Um, I know that some think that assurance, that they're afraid of presumption. And they, they say, well, you can't have assurance because that would be presumptive. No, the Bible wants you to have assurance. The Bible wants you to be assured of your salvation. That you would have, notice here, the language here is that you would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before you. You would have strong encouragement to take hold, that is to be assured that you are loved by God and that you are a child of God and that you truly are born of God and by His Spirit and that you belong to God in Jesus Christ. God wants you to have that strong encouragement here. Now listen, no, that is a matter for the Spirit to apply to you. No amount of time with a counselor, I don't think, is going to you know, get you there. I know that you know, it's, it's common in evangelical circles. You walk the aisle, and what is the first thing they try to do in the back room? They try to give you assurance of salvation. Okay, 
I don't think it's really supposed to work that way. And I don't think if you're an honest, it doesn't often, you know, help. Because then you just go, well, how do I know? <laughs> you know, that I just didn't do this in my human flesh and I just walked this aisle, you know, in my, in my own strength. Assurance is a, is a work of the Spirit. And, and assurance, uh, you, you, the Bible says you are to seek assurance of your salvation. I know that there, there are some who never come to the Lord's table because they don't have that assurance. Uh, and, and so they say, I, I, I can't come to the Lord's table because I don't want to come in an unworthy manner. And, and listen, that's a good goal. Uh, none of us want to partake in an unworthy manner. Uh, but I, I would suggest that that's not what Paul was speaking to. Paul, Paul is telling a Corinthian church that is in chaos, <laughs> um, who are going through all kinds of issues pastorally, and all kinds of sin going on that needs to be corrected, and they are coming to the table as though it were their own. That's what is going on here. But nevertheless, you are to seek assurance. So if you are struggling this morning uh, with this, um, what do you do? You use the means of grace. You look to the promises. You pray through these promises. You seek to apply the promises of God to you, particularly as an individual. You know, some will say, well, I see the promise of God to the church, but I don't know that I'm one of the church. Now, the promise is to be received by you individually. You are to take hold of Jesus Christ by faith. You come uh, with all your lack of assurance to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus because you have assured yourself of your faith. You come to Jesus Christ with all your doubt and your lack of assurance, and you say, Lord Jesus, help me. You know, Peter got out of the boat, and he had all kinds of assurance at first as he's walking on the water, and then he started to sink, and what, but what did he do? He cried out unto the Lord. He said, Lord, save me. Help me. He was beginning to lose assurance of the promise of God. And, and he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord saves him. So it is with the Christian. The Christian may indeed go through seasons where they are struggling in their faith. Maybe it's because of temptation. Maybe it's due to, uh, uh, you know, laziness. You just got lazy. And you stopped reading your Bible. You stopped praying at home. You stopped family worship. You started going off on vacation and skipped church more and more frequently. And, you know, the Lord said, huh, okay, you know. And you were left in darkness for a season. Maybe it's through no fault of your own. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, says that sometimes you're walking as faithfully as you can walk in the Lord Jesus Christ in this world and for whatever purposes, maybe so that you would rely more on the promise and less on yourself, the sense of God's nearness is withdrawn. And you are left to cast yourself more wholly upon the Lord again. The promise here in the book of Hebrews is this, that you have the word of God, the promise of God, you have the oath of God in Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen to this oath and promise, and that you lay your soul, your hope, on Christ. 
Put every ounce of weight you have on Christ. The woman with the bleeding problem had exhausted her own resources, had exhausted all the medical technology of that day, had exhausted all the physicians of that day, and she still was bleeding. But she said, if I can but just touch the edge of his garment, I will be made better. She took what she had with all its deficiencies and laid hold. She said, even the smallest part of Jesus Christ will be more to me than all the physicians of the world. If I can just, between a thumb and a finger, touch the edge of that garment with faith, God will give me the grace I need. You may be lacking in, in your assurance. You may be struggling in your perseverance. But what do you do? You do not try to you know, just get right on your own and then say, well, on this basis, Lord, take me. But you go as your present condition is. But go to Christ because it, it is Christ who saves us. It is not we ourselves in our efforts, in our works, in our piety. It is Christ. But God would not have you, it is not spiritual maturity to stay in a state of a lack of assurance. I don't know, maybe some people think that that's greater maturity, to always have some doubt, to always be lacking in assurance. Christ would have us be encouraged and assured of the hope that is set before you. It is true, as Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress, there are some who will cross the River Jordan with struggles and a fight. But, but it is more the ordinary that those of us who die in Jesus Christ, we die with encouragement and assurance that God would have you die well. Now, I, that brings me to the third and final point. And this is a beautiful picture that the author of Hebrews gives us. And that is that Jesus Christ is portrayed as an anchor set behind the veil. Now, that is language that is pregnant with Old Testament meaning. And what... The author of Hebrews is referring to, well, let's just read it first. And then notice verse 19. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What is this hope that we have? This hope of assurance in Jesus Christ. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Now an anchor, you boys and girls, young children, you know what an anchor is, right? An anchor is usually this big piece of metal that are on ships. And again, if I can use John Owen in his commentary on this section, John Owen says that ships use an anchor in two occasions. One is when they are at harbor and they want to stay in the harbor. <laughs> two is when they are out in the midst of the worst of storms. And you read this in the book of Acts. You remember how Paul is on the, on the boat and they're there for 14 days. They're in the midst of the worst storm that the Mediterranean probably has ever seen. 
and they get to the point of desperation. They're afraid that they're going to break up somewhere and they're all drowned. And so what do they do? They, they let out the anchors. And what do these anchors do? What these anchors do is that as the boat is being driven by the storm, is that the hope is that those anchors will secure on the ground under the water first and stop the boat from moving into even further rocky or shallower water and being broken up until the storm is over and then they can pull up the anchor and be on their way again. Now, what is the author of Hebrews saying? He is saying here in verse 19 that you have as an anchor for your soul. So you have an anchor. And what is this anchor? This anchor of the soul is the hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters into, or excuse me, within the veil. That is, you have an anchor for your soul, and he says, it's behind the veil. Now, what's the veil? He's referring to that giant Old Testament curtain that separated the holy room from the holy of holies. And what was in the holy of holies? The holy of holies was where God dwelt in the temple in Solomon's days. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the mercy seat was. And the high priest in the Old Covenant would go into, the, into that room one time a year, and he would never go without blood. But here's the neat part. What he is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, the reason we can have such assurance is because of the outcome for us. The reason you will persevere is because Jesus Christ is the anchor of your soul who has gone behind that veil. And guess what? He is still there as an anchor. Owen makes the point that in the Old Covenant, the high priest went in, but what did he always do? He always came out. There was no anchor behind the veil for the believers. The high priest would go in and would offer the blood, the propitiatory blood, but he'd always come back. He'd always come out. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is what Jesus Christ has done in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension is that once Jesus had completed his work of his death and resurrection, he went up into the veil, into the glory. You know, that's why, boys and girls, while Jesus is on the cross and he yells, it is finished. And what happens? The curtain rips. The curtain at the temple in Jerusalem is torn from top to bottom miraculously. Why was it torn? It was torn because it's done. It is finished. We don't need that veil anymore. Jesus Christ, our anchor, has gone into the real holy of holies in heaven, where God dwells himself, where the glory, not just the typological glory room, but the glory of glories, the holy of holies, where God Almighty is, and Jesus Christ, our high priest at his right hand, and where he is staying until the end of time. He says, your anchor is up there. That means if you have an anchor in glory, 
your boat is secure in glory. We'll see more of this tonight when we deal with Romans chapter 8. That he who justifies you, sanctifies you, will and has glorified you. Paul uses the past tense. So strong is this sure anchor that Paul will even speak of the future glorification that awaits for us as believers as a past event. How can he do that? Because he can speak eschatologically, because he can speak of your union with Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, the Hebrews were tempted to leave Christ. And so the author of Hebrews here is saying, don't do that. Don't go back to the shadows and to the types. You have something far more valuable in Jesus Christ. You have the promise, the immutable promise of God in Jesus Christ, who is the anchor of your soul. And that anchor is secured. It has taken hold of the throne room of God. And your ship is safe. 